I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is author, bioethicist, and Mount Sinai psychiatrist, Jacob Appel, MD, NJD. His new book is Who Says You're Dead? Medical and Ethical Dilemmas for the Curious and Concerned. Who should get custody of an embryo created through IVF when a couple divorces? Should an alcoholic in poor health be forced to go to rehab? Can a pediatrician refuse to see non-vaccinated patients or clients? Or when you or a loved one is on life support, who says you're dead? Dr. Jacob Appel considers these bioethical questions, asking readers to play doctor and decide what they would do if confronted with a dilemma. He then reveals what decisions were actually made in the real-life cases on which his scenarios are based. Dr. Appel is an attending psychiatrist in the Mount Sinai healthcare system, teaches bioethics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where he's the director of ethics education and psychiatry, and is a member of the Institutional Review Board. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. It's a great book. It's a, your book is a page-turner, I have to say. Um, I, when I started it, and uh, I couldn't put it down, downloaded it. Um, okay, so let's talk about these. all of these examples that you've given. I gave a few in the, in the introduction, but um, which one do you want? Bi- medical bioethics. How does that work at Mount Sinai as a psychiatrist? What do you do? Sure. So I think more generally, because I wear a number of hats, bioethicists do two things. One, they offer general commentary in the world on these complex issues that face society, and we can talk about a few of them. And then they offer concrete guidance in the hospital setting to patients and families. And I tell people it's not that you ask for an ethics consultant to give you an answer, but they help you figure out what your own answers are. And most people don't seek truth. They seek permission to do what they already want to do. Right, so given that they're seeking permission, they want to do what they, how does that work in the context of like you as a psychiatrist working with them on some of these issues that we just, well, that you target in the book and then there are lots more. Let's take an example um, of one of these uh, because uh, the man who's killed in an accident and uh, it's his, his fiance wants the doctors to harvest his sperm so she can have his child. And she says that would have been his wishes. Sure. Um, so posthumous sperm harvesting has been a, a complex issue for over a generation now. Um, and sometimes there's a legal framework and also an ethical framework, but sometimes it's fairly straightforward. If a patient, for example, has clearly expressed what they would have wanted done in the scenario, there's a good ethical argument for honoring it. Not a, not a airtight one, because you could argue that making decisions to father a child after your death or bring somebody else's child into the world um, has implications for the child, too. But the issue is more complex when we don't know what the person's wishes were. And often, the relationship is much more tenuous than a couple already trying to have a kid. They could be um, girlfriend and boyfriend. They could be parents who want to have grandchildren. And then there are the complex questions that will motivate someone. You might want to have posthumous offspring from your only child because you want to preserve your gene line and have a grandchild to love, or you might want to divert property away from someone else through inheritance loss. And, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, so there are lots of different reasons that you're going, that you have to examine. You also, from a psychological point of view, you may not have really gone through the grief process and you're, you know, and 
wanting to um, harvest your fiancé's sperm, maybe, you know, at one particular, you know, in the beginning of when the person first dies may not, you may not have the same feeling nine months later when you have a new boyfriend. Exactly. So one of the key goals of this book is even people who have very strongly held beliefs, spiritual, religious, cultural, on particular issues, the scenarios are designed so that they pierce into that gray area where people of goodwill can disagree, and there are no clear-cut answers. There are just more questions to be asked. Well, well let's talk about one of the other ones. More questions to be asked. Here's the one about the, uh, the immigrant in her 90s who has terminal cancer but doesn't want, but her children insist that she not be told the diagnosis. Um, but her family says this is a culture, and this is a cultural thing uh, in one particular culture, not necessarily in United in our culture here in the United States. So how do you handle that situation? Sure. And I've actually dealt with that particular scenario a number of times over the years. Um, because on the one hand, sort of the baseline fundamental in our society today in bioethics uh, and medical decision-making is the Frank Sinatra rule. I'll do it my way. And in order to do it your way, to have autonomy, we have to give you all the information. On the other hand, sometimes giving you all the information disposes you to an outcome you don't want. Um, the example I always use is on your way home from work one day, turn to your spouse and ask, if I were having an extramarital affair, would you want to know? Now, by asking the question, you tell them the answer. So we can't just ask an elderly patient, would you want to know if you had cancer? Because what we're really doing is saying to them, you have cancer. So you have to explore it in oblique ways, and different clinicians develop different methods. One method I've used is I get a good family history from the patient, and I ask um, the patient, Tell me what your mother died of, how old was she, what your father died of, how old was she. Oh, your aunt died of cancer. Tell me about that. Oh, did you tell her? And when the patient says, of course we didn't tell her, that would have killed her, um, then I have a much better insight into the patient's wishes. Um, what about the, legality, the uh, legalities of that? Aren't you required as a physician to give all the information to the patient that they have, that, that it's their right to have that information? Not necessarily. Your obligation is to give the patient all the information they want. So the most concrete example is someone who says to me overtly, I don't want to know what words you're saying. I've been married 50 years. Just tell my wife and whatever she decides I'm okay with. That we definitely honor. If you're not getting an overt statement, but rather significant oblique hints that combine to make a person the wish clear, we can often honor that. So a combination of family making clear wishes known, saying grandma wouldn't want to know, a very clear cultural tradition, and then also a meaningful interview with a patient that shows that they buy into this in very specific ways. We can't just assume that because you come from a particular culture or your relatives say don't tell them that you wouldn't want to know. We're much more careful than that. And my question, though, is as a social worker, I've done a lot of hospital social work, and you know patients in hospitals, first of all, families, they don't necessarily tell the truth about all the what's, you know, the family dynamics. And then when people leave, things change. I was just thinking about, and and let's say in this case, you haven't told the patient um, their real diagnoses and they leave and something happens. Well, this is a 90 year old patient, maybe somebody younger. And um, they, they come back and they say, well, you didn't tell us um, you know, something happened as a result of that in terms of my medical care. It, it seems to me that would be like a huge kind of legal morass. I don't know. I'm just, if I were talking. There are, there yeah. are on both sides. Our, our goal is to do no harm and to do what, what 
expectations to wishes are. It's just in cases like this, it's not so clear exactly what the wishes are. So the alternative is the patient says to you, my children told you not to tell me this, or the children say we told you not to tell her. Um, it made her miserable in the last years of her life. Um, there are legal implications on both sides. And I, what I always tell the, the medical students is, rather than thinking about the complex letter of the law, ask yourself, if you told a jury of reasonable people what you did, would they say, that seemed like the right thing to do and make sense? Or would they say, that sounds like a crazy thing to do? And if it's the former, you're usually on pretty safe ground. Yeah, okay, let's go, <clears throat> let's go on to another one, because all of these are, are really so interesting. Uh, you have, um, wrong, I don't know if you call it wrongful life or wrongful death, about the couple who, or the woman who went in to get her tubes tied after having four children, didn't want to have a fifth, um, but... What let's uh, but she did, uh, let, let's des- describe to us that case. Sure. So, so I think wrongful life and wrongful birth cases involve scenarios where parents do not want to have children and are fairly clear about it, and either through a medical error or through willful misconduct on the part of physicians, um, they end up having a child anyway. And the question is, can they receive compensation, and can the child receive compensation? So, for example. If you do not want to have a child with a particular identified birth defect, and due to a mistake the doctors make, that child is born anyway, can that child raise a claim that if not for the doctor's error, I wouldn't have been born with Down, Down syndrome or wouldn't have been born with Tay-Sachs disease through a guardian making that claim? Um, and what we're really asking is, is no life at all, the non-existence of a human being, balanceable or weighable against existing in a way that you wouldn't want to? Um, and there's no easy answer to that, but it's been a significant legal issue in a number of states, uh, most recently in Georgia. But a couple of years ago, it became an issue in Utah when, at least in one scenario, um, doctors intentionally withheld um, the likelihood of a uh, birth uh, deformity from the parents because they wanted to deter the parents from having an abortion. And the parents went to court and said, you can't do that. And the Utah court system disagreed and said that even though this might have been wrong on the part of the doctors, there was no ground for recovery because living was inherently a better state than not living. Well, one of the, the example you gave, or one of the scenarios in the book, which I found interesting, was the, the, the couple I just mentioned who went to get her tubes tied, but the doctor made a mistake and only tied one tube. So she gave birth to this perfectly healthy baby nine months later, and then they wanted to sue the doctor because they, he, well, he made a mistake. He, they, should, they didn't want a fifth child for a lot of reasons. Um, that was kind of an interesting case because it was very complicated. I mean, they had this beautiful, then the doctor said, well, I'll compensate for, I, you know, certain things, but not for her college education and, you know, for the rest of her life just because she was born. That seemed like a, uh, a, a, a very, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what I, what I tell people when these cases come up and when I discuss them is no matter what the letter of the law says, if you go before the jury and show them a healthy, bouncing baby child, no jury is going to compensate you no matter what the doctor did. All right. There's new stuff now. Let's say with there's some of the issues that you bring up in the book and lots of examples about um, cloning, for instance. I mean, that's a hot topic. Uh, give us some examples where uh, that bring up these biomedical issues when it comes to cloning. 
Sure. And even before I get to cloning, I, I do want to mention that we're cloning is part of a larger genetic revolution and um, technological revolution in medicine, of which it is a small window. Um, the very concrete example I always use to show people how this affects their own lives, because realistically, cloning for most people is, if they even want it, um, down the pipe, um, is many of your listeners are listening on the radio at work or in the car, and I ask them, how many of them locked their doors on the way to work? And almost all of them are going to say yes. How many of them dusted the doorknobs for DNA? And the answer when I teach is overwhelmingly no. And yet the DNA from your doorknobs, which can be appropriated in a large number of states, um, can be tested in all sorts of ways to reveal family issues, health issues, can be sent to other people legally in a number of states. So it's very tangible in a practical way. Cloning, which is part of that same revolution, a little bit further down the line, is a wide gamut of different kinds of scientific technology. So there are questions of whether or not we should clone historically extinct animals. Should we bring back a mastodon? Should we bring back a Neanderthal man um, if we have the DNA to do it? Um, would bringing back a de- uh, Neanderthal man impose unfair suffering on another hominid? And then there's the issue of reproductive cloning for human beings. So what I have to say, having lectured on bioethics all across the country for many years, is cloning as a conceptual issue is really, really interesting. But when you actually ask people, would you want to be cloned? The answer is overwhelmingly no. I will address an audience of a thousand people, and maybe one hand goes up. The odds this will transform Western civilization are fairly low. But an interesting topic. Well, what about, I don't know if this is called, well, let's say you lose a finger or a hand. Would cloning your hand or your finger or some appendage that you lost, is that an example of medical, of cloning? Sure. I, I mean, it's, in the, it's a somatic cloning in a way. But yes, um, and certainly regenerative medicine may use the cloning of cells and the harvesting of, of organs um, grown either in the laboratory or, in theory, grown in animals. We're starting to work our way toward that. Um, I think the more challenging, and this is science fiction, but not entirely science fiction now, would be the concept of harvesting or creating shell bodies that has only anencephalic brains that weren't fully functioning in order to perform brain transplants someday. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but conceptually, we're on the path where that might be conceivably doable. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned, one of the points in your book was, yes, you can clone somebody, but even when you clone, let's say you cloned a person uh, or a brain, uh, they are still going to be brought up in a different environment than the original person that you cloned them from. So they won't be exactly the same. Absolutely. So clones will not be the same as you are. They will be different people. One interesting challenge that we've yet to figure out, if human beings are cloned successfully into adulthood, is what the legal relationship is between the progenitor and the clone. Is the clone your sibling, your child? Do they inherit your property? Um, do they have any obligation to you at all? If you have a clone and then you need a transplant of an expendable organ, like a kidney or a cornea, or bone marrow, do they have any obligation to give you one beyond that as any other citizen? No easy answers to that. But I, I will add, I don't think the legal system has even begun to think about these questions in a meaningful way. Well, here's another example. Here's another one, which I think also is kind of was complicated and complex, as you say. Um, a, ba- a person who has three biological mothers, because you can take what the the a person, a mother who has a defective gene, take it out, put a gene from another m- m- viable gene, inject that into that mother's cell. 
and she can give birth to a perfectly healthy baby. And actually, she could then take that embryo could be put into a third, a surrogate mother. Whose baby is it and how many mothers are there? And I mean, all the just, as you say, legal ramifications of that. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah, we're, we're reaching the we're reaching the point where we have four, where we have the potential for four parent babies. Now, we already have had three parent babies born. Where the, for those of you who remember from high school biology, there are mitochondria in the cell and there's the nucleus, and you can take out the nucleus, put it into a different cytoplasm with different genetic mitochondria, and from two different women, usually done to prevent specific genetic diseases that are carried in the X line, um, and then. If a, another woman has that implanted in her body, if you have, three, you have three mothers and then the father who conceived it, and it's not clear who the legal parents are, and it differs from state to state and from country to country, and you can have one legal parent in one country and two different legal parents in a different country, um, and I think more and more of these are going to be challenging issues that we really need to get ahead of. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate that because of much of the polarization in our society about politics and ethics, that we haven't had a, an opportunity to sit down and really grapple with the details of how we're going to handle these challenges as they come forward. So, in other words, nothing is being done. I mean, like the, like the I don't know the AMA or whatever the organizations that deal with with these kinds of, of situations. It's just sort of evolving on its own until something. Yeah, very. Yeah, absolutely. So, very little is being done. Um, and I would add, some of it has to be done at the international level because we we live in a global world medically. And increasingly, there's going to be a race to the bottom. No matter what rules the United States makes or Western Europe makes, if you can do it differently in, or unregulatedly in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, somebody will, and then suddenly we are a prisoner to their moral or ethical regimen. So what about it, it actually being specific, like at Sinai? I mean, is anything, is this, these kinds of, this particular topic, is that something that is being discussed? Well, I think people at individual hospitals and ethics committees and um, institutes talk about these issues, but I think there's been much less framework, much less effort toward building a more meaningful structural framework. Um, I, I will add, I believe this is the first presidency in quite a long time that has had no bioethics commission. Um, so we're actually, I think, taking a step backwards. Um, I, I will take this opportunity to urge the president, whatever one's politics, to appoint a bioethics commission that can actually discuss some of these issues and um, produce some white papers for society to be guided by. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds, I mean, it's critical. What would you say in, in like, in your career um, or in your experience, what was the most difficult situation that, that you had to resolve? So I, I think the most challenging situation I've personally been aware of, which is different from the most challenging one I've heard of, um, is actually the first scenario in the book, um, which is what is to be done when someone comes forward as a potential kidney donor for a parent, and there's bad news and there's worse news. They are, on the one hand, not a potential match, and on the other hand, it's also discovered that they're not biologically related. And there's a complex question, do you tell them, under what circumstances do you tell them? And there are significant ethical and medical implications either way. If you reveal to someone that they're supposed biological father isn't their father, you can disrupt their family um, significantly. On the other hand, if you don't tell them that and they rely on the assumption that someone is their father, they may give a false 
medical history to people when asked. They'll tell people we have no history in a suicide in their family or early onset colon cancer. And when they choose to have their own children, they might not get screened for certain diseases. If they think they come from a long line of Scandinavians, they may not get tested for diseases traditionally found among Ashkenazi Jews with dire consequences. Um, so I've, I've been aware of that in various hospitals I've worked at. Um, and then for those members of your listening audience who think that's fairly clear-cut, I will give a scenario that I'm aware of that I've not been involved with that pushes the envelope even further in terms of challenge. What do you do with a husband and wife who come forward and there's good news and there's quote-unquote better news? They discover not only are they potential matches to exchange a kidney, but that they're also biologically related, possibly siblings. Then do you tell them or then do you not tell them? Because telling them may actually dissolve their marriage in a number of jurisdictions, but not telling them runs the risk of having a child with severe birth defects or genetic disorders. No easy answers. Boy, as you, I think, and I'm just thinking if I were that person, your patient, if I were about to have a child with my brother, I would want to know. Um, there are so many implications for that. Um, yeah. What about the 23 and me? And, what? It's interesting you say that because I actually, I ask that question often when I lecture and people show their hands and it splits it that evenly whether people will want to know or they wouldn't. 50, 50, really? 50-50? That's yeah, 50-50 yeah. roughly. Um, what about, and a pair, I was going to ask you this, I was going to say that you gave the example of, um, of the kidney and not being, um, say the, the biological child of the father, let's say the mother had an affair or whatever. You statistically, I think in the book, you say that happens fairly frequently, one to 2% or two, three to 3% of the yeah. time. The data yeah. anywhere in studies from 1% to 4% of false paternity. Um, so what I remind people is when I was a kid, we used to do blood typing in middle school. You would look at your own blood typing, and then you would go home and see what your parents' blood types are. Increasingly, they don't do that because people make discoveries we didn't want them to make. Um, so, yeah, this is a fairly common phenomenon when I teach for medical students, since it's very evenly distributed across society. I tell them, look to the right of you and look to the left of you. Well, with what this is, I started to ask this question about like, um, you know, you can do these tests yourself, the 23andMe and all the others. What's the impact of those on, um, well, in, in terms of your practice and what you see? The information well, thing, patients forget. come in with themselves. So, so, one thing people forget is that doing genetic testing is, is not something that is entirely legally protected. That GINA, the Genetic Information Non Discrimination Act, prevents prospective employers and health insurers from discriminating against you. But there are a whole host of other ways this information can be used in a way that you might not want. Um, for example, if you were to try to purchase long-term care insurance, um, the insurer might gain misinformation. Um, and you may make discoveries that impact not only you, but your family members. So a classic example and challenging ethical dilemma is someone who wants testing to see whether they are at higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. And the science is complex, but the short answer is there is a way to test likelihood, not a guarantee, but an increased or decreased likelihood. However, it also unmasks the risk of your parents. So if you discover that you're at high risk, you also discover that your parents are at least at above average risk. And you may choose to lead your life in a different way as a result that may tell them something. You may have the ethical dilemma of whether or not to share this with them. 
Um, so these are not easy answers, and they don't just affect the individual. They affect communities and larger groups. One last example, and then I um, we only have a few minutes left, but I think one uh, this was one of the chapters in the book about the president a, a, or a political, let's say, um, person in, in power who's supposedly reveals their medical history, but this may be the president of the United States. So I I think I I do a lot of speaking about presidential health, um, which I guess increasingly is in the news today. And one of the challenges is we have no way of knowing, not just for current political leaders, but for historic political leaders, what information they've shared with the public is true and what isn't true. And we know at least in some instances it's been concretely false. So if you're a physician, on the one hand, what is your obligation to your patients to withhold information they don't want shared? But also, what is your obligation with this high stakes of case to look out for the interests of the Western world and the public more generally? Um, on that question, we have to end the show, and that's a great question to end it on because, I mean, I think uh, we want people to buy the book, Who Says You're Dead? Medical and Ethical Dilemmas for the Curious and Concerned. We've been talking to Dr. Jace, Jacob M. Appel. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, as, as this goes on, I have to have you on the show again. I have lots more questions, but thanks so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 